to another edition of the Teacher's Lounge podcast. I'm your host, Brian. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope your week is off to a good start as we do another episode of the podcast that was designed for teachers by a teacher. And of course, that teacher is me. This particular episode of the Teacher's Lounge podcast came out several years ago and As I listen to it, you know what? This is pretty good, but could use another edit, one that shortens it into a format that I feel is an improvement, and hopefully you can get some value from it. This was a conversation I had with National Hall of Fame educator Alan Haskovics, and the title was Traits of Successful Teachers. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. Tell us a little bit about your background in education. Why did you, sir choose education of all fields to go into? Well, initially I started in business, but after several years in business, I realized that essentially it was all about how much money you could get from people. So I started substitute teaching and working on my education degrees. And at that time, there wasn't any openings in California where I reside. So I went to Canada to work on my doctorate and sort of got into education because it was just such an exciting profession versus just making money where you could, you know, teaching was a place to actually help people. Now, Alan, going back to your first year, was it a good first year or were you kind of like, wow, I wish I'd stayed in the corporate world? No, what happened to me was, and I think it's a, a good thing for all new teachers, I never had good teachers. I had like one teacher that, you know, I enjoyed because he taught me interesting things, but I had, like, really bad teachers. And a lot of teachers get in and they try to emulate the teachers that they liked. Um, And so I said, you know, all my teachers were boring. I don't want to be boring. And I quickly established a new way of teaching uh, that the kids responded to because it actually applied what they were learning to, to them personally. And this was in the 1970s. And immediately it was successful. So it's interesting. You took all the bad experiences and you decided, no, I don't want to go down that road. And in turn, you did the opposite of what you had seen and experienced. One of the things I've noticed through the years is there's a lot of good teachers, but they really haven't been with a great teacher. Mm. And they don't know. And they like school. So they they don't have much in common with the student because they like school. Most students don't like school. And so they pattern themselves after the teacher that they liked. And one of the things that they should do is approach it from a different angle, which is what about the bad teachers and learn from the bad teachers. As much as we don't like to admit it, there are some bad teachers out there who shouldn't be in the profession. But you wrote an interesting article in the Gazette, uh, teachers.net, about some traits that are found among not just good teachers, but excellent teachers, traits that they all have in common. So I want to kind of go through some of these and kind of have you expound upon what you mean uh, by these and why excellent teachers would have these over maybe teachers who are not not that good. And the first one you wrote was excellent teachers should be good learners. Why is that important for a teacher? Just like a coach, every time you get a new team together, if you, if you force your system on the kids, it doesn't work. So you have to be flexible. You have to take what you have coming in and, and alter it to fit what you have there. It's very difficult, to say the least, to have a set expectation for students when you don't even know what they are. 
be very flexible, be very able to change things as, as they occur. And that's harder for veteran teachers because they kind of get stuck in a pattern and sometimes they don't want to change, but even new teachers or veteran teachers, we've all got to change, correct? I have an article coming out exactly like that. Since the state mandates testing in California and I'm sure other states too, and my test scores were extremely high. I teach at a school with five subcategories, and that means that there's language subcategories, there's poor, not poor students, but low social economics. There's five subcategories, and that's very unusual to have so many subcategories. And yet, the last two years, uh, 95% of my students uh, finished in the top two categories of testing in the state of California. In the last two years, out of the 300 students that I, actually more than 300, about 400 students that I taught, only uh, three failed wow. using that system. But the article I wrote was, because I'm doing so well, I hate to change because <laughs> test scores are high. You know, it makes you hidebound. It doesn't make any sense, I know, but since testing becomes more important than teaching. I think some of the times it, it's hard to, as a teacher, become a good learner and to uh, look for better ways to achieve success. We kind of sometimes become cynical because we are just thrown in our direction so many new programs that are going to raise test yeah. scores and all. We just kind of get shut down to even learning new methods. Yeah, and, and you learn from the kids. You're always learning from the kids. Yeah. You know, that they'll come in and they'll say something. And when they're talking, when they don't understand you, when they're saying something, that's where you learn. Because you might assume they know something and they didn't get it. So you're learning what they don't know. All the time you're learning. That's what keeps you young. I don't know why people would retire from teaching, you know, unless, you know, they're inherently wealthy. Can you give us an example of maybe sometime that a student taught you something? <laughs> Almost all the time. One time, the custodians were working across the street, and they were noticing that the custodians were hosing off a tennis court. And they said, you know, we're supposed to be saving water. How come they're hosing off the tennis court? And I said, I don't know. Let's go find out. And so they ended up passing state legislation re requiring all state buildings to use airscape drought-tolerant uh, landscaping and not do that. So it ended up with uh, them flying to Sacramento, Etc. with uh, Los Angeles Times in tow, scaring the, they gave a, actually they gave a test to the state senate they had created. So it all started with a comic, you know, and I'm, I learned, what do you mean you don't see, you know, that as a problem? When you go by it every day, you see someone hosing off something, and they saw it. Another time we had maybe some schools allow voting to take place in their gymnasiums, multipurpose rooms. And so I took the students down there at our school, and they said, Okay, here's some practice ballots, because we had arranged this before, and you can practice voting. And the kids looked at it and said, we don't understand these. And you go, what do you mean you don't understand? You know, I'll punch it and stuff like this. And I says, oh, you don't understand it. Okay, well, I went back to the classroom. I taught them the Fry uh, writing formula, which is an extremely fast way to improve writing scores uh, at any level. I taught them how to do that, and they created a way of writing how to use the ballots. And we invited the Los Angeles County Register of Voters out. He was, or at that time was a she, and she said, well, I really don't know what we're doing here, and da da da, da. And then they looked down and said, thanks. And all the next year they were all uh, using my students' version of how to vote. So I, I learned that they didn't know how to do something, and we changed it. You can't complain. You have to make things better. That's one of the rewards of teaching, isn't it? You know, just yeah. when you think you're the teacher, you can become the student all over again. Yeah, and you just watch them go. You don't know how they got there. Uh, 
So if you just, no matter, every kid is like, you know, a new world. And you go, what? You know, it's amazing all the time. I can go on for story after story of what they, we've accomplished. It's, it's actually amazing. One said, uh, you know, you told us to contact the mayor. He doesn't call back. So we, he made a website where the students can correspond directly with elected officials in the community. And they did the work. We, we even did one study. They said, why don't people vote? If it's so important in our classroom that we vote, why don't, why don't our parents vote? I don't mm-hmm. know. Let's go find out, you know. Yeah. So we started to do that, and uh, we created uh, 12 ways to improve voting. And the Los Angeles County Registered Voter hold a conference with every city in Los Angeles County, listening to what my students said. And we learned, for, for example, just from that little comment, we learned why you vote on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. We learned all these obsolete things that are still in vogue. We, the kids asked, well, why, why are they voting on Tuesday? Why don't they vote on Saturday or Sunday? Or why don't they have two days of voting? Or why does it close at 8 o'clock? Uh, I didn't have the answers. Yeah, you created questions and created curiosity. And our excellent teachers are lifelong learners, and they produce lifelong yep. learners. And that's, that's fantastic. Yep. A lot of excellent yep. teachers have that quality. Yeah, empower the kids. Number two on your list, the second trait that you listed is that outstanding teachers have high expectations. Why is that so important? Well, seldom it's like uh, when you're working at a job you didn't choose, (laughs) okay? Why should you work hard? And that's the key. They don't really want to be in school by and large. So, you know, why should they be that way? But if you put expectations in front of them, they'll meet the expectations. The students, unless they're limited by the language or, you know, they have a mental incapacity that doesn't allow them to reach their fruition, the greatest thing is to watch them go if you have high expectations. Just to give you an idea of what that means, if you have your kids and they come in the classroom and you just have them do the test, fine. Why are you doing that? Why aren't they creating the test? Pretty soon, they're creating the test and they're pushing one another. You just get out of their way. One of the things I did was a practice test, and the students would make their own test and quiz yeah. each other, you know, and that was exactly. a fantastic and assessment. You, yeah, you just teach them how to do distractors and stems, you know, in multi-choice, multiple choice, and they started, then, wow, it goes. And they love it. They love the challenge. Kids are competitive. Oh, yes. Don't we set ourselves up for failure, though, if we have too high expectations? Where do you create the, the balance in that we should have high expectations but how high do you go well the high expectations are, are individual for each kid and that's one of the things people you know they tend to give them a, a percentage grade uh, you, you know like here's your percentage grade and that makes it almost impossible for some students to that means they're challenging another student so what you try to do is you try to get them to challenge themselves and that's the key you high high expectations for them to improve. It's like when you're in PE and you're you know doing a softball throw or something. Well, you can say you have to you get 100 percent if you throw it 200 feet or whatever it happens to be. If you're a little kid, you don't have an arm. How can they possibly do that? But if you measure by their improvement and you set goals that are appropriate for each child or that you know at the child's level, they can reach the goals. They can't be impossible goals. It's just amazing what they can do. Well, how do you specifically motivate a student who doesn't want to be there, who doesn't care, and you're motivated like, I have such high expectations for you. You just give them a pep talk, or what all does that entail to 
meet those high expectations? Well, I, you know, I don't reach all the students. Sometimes a student, especially students whose parents uh, don't care, as every teacher knows. Oh, yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's the parent that's really the, the key. You spend five and a half, six hours at school, and the other 18 hours you spend at home. And so, obviously, if you only have the students a small amount of time without any help at home, you can't. But one of the things that I, that I do with the kids that are slow to motivate is put them in charge. And they've never been in charge. And so when you give them, empower them to do something, okay, you know, how do you think we should do this? And now they start to feel, hey, I can make a difference. I, I'm really important here. And they take charge. And when they take charge, the other students are looking at them, and peer pressure works much better than teacher pressure. I'm trying to involve them some way. I think sometimes we as teachers, we just make judgments and we just cast them aside. Yeah. And you're saying involve them, uh, let them come to your high expectations. Yeah, I got, I, I got a student this year that falls asleep every time. Every year he just falls asleep. He's, he's up. The parents let him stay up 2, 3 in the morning, play on the Internet. Parents can't handle him. So he comes to my class. So I says, okay, if you do well in tests, we'll see. And then do, he does very well. But the point was is that he's just not doing what's supposed to be, so I put him in charge. I said, okay, you know, you've got to teach this here part of this. You have to develop the lesson. That, well, can I use the Internet? Can I use the computers? Yeah, they're over there. I have all in my classroom. I asked the community and the parents. It's very important for a teacher to use the community, <laughs> very important. And they donated all old computers. And so I had at one time 16 computers in the classroom, all donated. So, you know, they go on there, he creates lessons on there, and he comes alive, and they're learning, and now, you know, you, you harvested a, a better crop. Oh, fantastic. One of the things that you also mentioned is the fact that excellent first-class teachers have a good sense of humor. And that's not something that you necessarily learn in, in college, that they teach you to make jokes or accept jokes. You know, you don't have to be a comedian. Why is this so important? Well, the first thing is it takes the edge off it. When you're teaching, you have to be able to laugh at some of the stuff that's there. And the kids really like that. And usually when you're teaching and humor is there, it makes learning more fun. And sometimes, you know, like we're just doing the black codes after the Civil War. The people in the South, the Confederacy, were using black codes to try to take away some of the rights of the freed slaves. So one of the students put down black codes were a way that black people talk to one another. Well, that's just too good to let fall. So you go like, okay, we can't answer this question anymore. Black codes away, be black. Well, everybody laughs at that. The kid has to laugh because he obviously didn't study. But the whole point is, it points out that making a mistake is okay. You can make it. You can laugh at mistakes. It's not the end of the world. And there's so many funny things that happen. And it gets the kids to listen. Not only that, but probably is also important just to have the ability of having to laugh at yourself uh, oh, yeah, for sure. as well. I mean, I think students like that uh, to the point where you, you have a sense of humor about yourself and your own mistakes. Oh, yeah. I mean, that sarcasm, especially in middle school and high school, can do wonders. Uh, oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely. What about some of those teachers who say you shouldn't smile until Christmas, and if you tell jokes or make things too comedic, uh, they're just going to get off task, and then before you know it, you have a wild group? You know, you have to earn a child's respect. You have to learn your students' respect. And that's why experienced teachers make more than new teachers. They're able to take that fine line between making it an uncontrollable class and making it an entertaining class. You can, you can come in and you can take that time and see 
when a joke would be appropriate or not, and which students might be sensitive and which students might not. It's, it's something that I wish the, the colleges would take. And by the way, the college system is, is among the things that hurts good quality teachers. Agreed. Too often when they go to a university, they're taught by teachers who haven't been in the classroom in years, even though NCATE said there should be classroom teachers teaching classroom teachers. There's very few of them. And when they do select a classroom teacher to teach at the college, it's usually a friend of a professor rather than someone who has shown the ability to, to turn out good product. You know, the number one weakness in teacher education is the university. And, and you always wonder, they want you to be good teachers, but when you take the traits of good teachers and you look at them, they're sometimes just sitting there lecturing. And they're saying, you know, if you, good teachers don't lecture. And they, they, they should model good teaching, and they don't. And that's another one of your qualities that you list as far as excellent teachers is the ability to be diverse in their methods, not just a deposit information where it's all lecture, but you said excellent teachers have diverse methods, correct? Yep. I was a speaker with uh, Howard Gardner at, uh, in uh, Vancouver on the Imagination and Education Conference. And one of the things we were talking about is the multiple intelligence of a child. If you just use, you know, reading and writing, you're missing the kids that have uh, intellect in art and music, you know, even in physical education. So if you can be diverse in the way you would handle it, you can create all sorts of a better learning opportunities. For example, if you're doing the explorers, why are you doing the explorers inside? You know, you teach the students, you integrate your lessons, you teach the students how big their stride is so they can walk off the distance. Then they know how far along, how fast they walk. In other words, how many miles per hour they walk, kilometers per hour that they walk. So they can understand if a, on a map of Explore goes from here to here. Well, they're outside. Then you give them a compass. Then you start teaching them, you know, let, you know, put the backpacks on. Some of the students have backpacks. They wear the backpacks. You teach them orienteering. They're outside. And then that's it. And then you say, okay, here comes a bear. How fast can you run? They don't know. So then you ask them, because you cast down your bucket. You use your community. You ask the local sheriff's department or police department to come and have the police officer there with a radar gun. And they run against the radar gun. So you have all these different ways of teaching something in a book that's a little map of where the explorers went. And you got your science. You have your math. You have your community relations. And the kids are excited. It makes learning much more fun for them. And it's definitely harder work on the teacher, and I think that's why the reason a lot of teachers don't do it, because it is harder work to have cover all those diverse learnings, but it's essential uh, if you're a proficient educator to offer children a diverse array of avenues to pursue excellence, as you said. Yeah, exactly. And in my opinion, if you see a teacher with a bunch of students lined up to talk to them, that's wrong. That means the teacher is the center of learning, and the teacher should be there to facilitate the learning, help the kids learn. And it's, it's wrong. Less teaching is better teaching. So once the students understand something, it, it should be able to go on, and they can teach each other uh, better than, than we can teach. You think we're, hit, we're moving in that direction as a society in this country in regards to education? Is that a direction we're moving in? Well, unfortunately, we have uh, No Child Left Behind that sort of mandates, you know, that you, you teach the test literally. Oh, yes. But, uh, in fact, it's... I wrote an article about that, and, um, about how it's totally uh, ended really good teaching, because essentially uh, social studies is now a second-rate 
It's all math and English with uh, everything else except being excluded. But the bottom line is that I think the teaching is moving in a better direction. As the younger teachers come out, they're more oriented towards the kids at their level. You should always have a school of young teachers because they can relate to the kids. They understand their music and their, their language better and their feelings better, always. But one weakness I see of the new teachers as they're coming out is they have one trait, unfortunately, in common, and that is they think they're going to change the world right, right away. And sometimes they get discouraged, and that's why something like 50 to 60% drop out within five years. Alan, how do you retain your passion? And one of the things you also mentioned was uh, good educators have passion for their subject, passion for teaching. How do you retain that with so much negativity in the educational world as you become a veteran teacher? I've done a lot of research on what makes teachers drop out, and usually it's shutting the door and isolating yourself from others. Mm. So if you have a problem, you take it home with you. You know, you don't, you're afraid. You don't have the ability to go, you know, do you have something that works with this kid? Because you're afraid that you don't have the confidence. So, you know, I share. Your staff, the people you work with are, if they're, you know, if, if you're in the right school, where you, you have a problem, you share. And that's, that's the key, sharing your, your passion. I was walking into school the other day, and in the staff room, there's 50 to 60 teachers at our school. There were laughter. Laughter coming out, good times, everything, you know, you can joke about things that are not related to school, you can have fun, it becomes a family. And when the school is a family, you know, you're always going to have some negative people or some people that, you know, da 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 you just ignore them and blow by them and just, just go with it. If you have a good principal, principal say, you know, tomorrow sounds like brownie days, I'm going to bring in some brownies, you know, what do you guys want to bring in? You get the idea? It becomes a family, and when it's a family, you don't get your burnout. What can a teacher do if they're caught in a situation where they possess a lot of these qualities that you we've talked about, but just the administration's not there for them and there's no support? Is there anything they can do? Well, I think that's where the communicator part of being a good teacher comes in. You have to be able to communicate with the parent right away. The first week of school, the first couple of weeks of school, you should have made your phone calls to the parents and seen what's there. That helps you understand the child more. And then when you go to the administrator, don't go with a list of complaints. Right. Go with suggestions of improvements, and that's all you can do. The other thing is, if that doesn't work, your friends, your other teachers, you work together with them. It is amazing. This kid is sleeping in my class. How about swapping his period for your period? Okay, you go to administration, and we can do that. You'd be surprised the power that teachers have just working together. They're a great team. They just need sometimes a little leadership. Anything else you can say to encourage the discouraged teacher out there? If you keep looking at the bad, <laughs> look at the good. Keep a positive attitude. And what I do is when I'm not in school, I keep active in other things. But it's really a great profession, and you can do it. Have faith in yourself. I want to thank my guest, Alan Haskovitz, for appearing on our program today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a good day.